Welcome to Practical Christian Living. If I were not a Christian and I were looking at the Bible as history, I might see some value in it, especially if I knew it as good as I know it now, that there's historical value in it, but I might reject the supernatural claims of the Bible as well. But there are several other places that speak of the resurrection of Jesus. Many Christians believe the resurrection by faith. But today on Practical Christian Living, we are talking about the evidence we have both in and outside of the Bible that proves the greatest event in history that made forgiveness and eternal life possible for you and me. With more on our teaching in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. On the Emmaus Road, the disciples say, when Jesus comes alongside of them and they don't recognize him, he obviously is somehow hiding himself from them. And uh, he says to them, you guys are sad. And they go, are you the only stranger here in Jerusalem that you don't know how uh, Jesus, who we thought and hoped was the Messiah, how he was crucified and died? And on top of all of this, certain women came from the tomb and said that they had seen him. These two disciples didn't believe the women. They were still sad. They just would not allow themselves to begin to even say, he said he was going to rise again. And if he said he was going to rise again, then he would. And so then in verse 11, it says, and their words seemed to be like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself what had happened. We also know in one of the other accounts, that as these women left the tomb, that Jesus appeared to them. They not only told him that they had seen the tomb, but that Jesus appeared to these women we also know that Mary Magdalene, and we'll talk about this in John, so I won't get into too much detail, but that Mary Magdalene was dispatched when they saw the tomb was rolled away, and she ran back to tell the disciples and told Peter and John, who then ran to the tomb. And then Mary shows up at the tomb after James, uh, John, and Peter are gone. And I'm way ahead of myself, so I'm not even going to get into any more of that. We'll get into that when we get into um, the, the appointment with Mary Magdalene after the resurrection. So what does the resurrection mean to you and I? I think before we get into the meaning of the resurrection, I want to talk about some of the proofs of the resurrection. Perhaps you've heard that word used, that there are, some people will say, there are indisputable facts about the resurrection that people just can't, they just don't have an answer to. Maybe you've been skeptical about those facts and wondered why that was the case. Well, first of all, the Bible tells us about the resurrection. But of course, and we do know that the Bible is historical. The Bible is far more historical. We know now that the Bible is far more historical than Bible critics of the past ever gave it credit for. It's telling us things that happened in places that are real. They will reject oftentimes the history even when there's evidence from other sources because of the supernatural aspect and just to be honest with you i understand that if i were not a christian and i were looking at the bible as history i might see some value in it especially if i knew it as good as i know it now that there's historical value in it but i might reject the supernatural claims of the bible as well but there are several other places that speak 
of the resurrection of Jesus. There was, first of all, Joseph, uh, Josephus, Flavius Josephus. He was the Jewish historian who was with Titus when Titus marched on Jerusalem in 66 AD and finally took Jerusalem in 70 AD. And he has two different passages on Jesus. One of them, the later one, is not disputable. Historians and experts say Josephus wrote about Jesus. And he wrote about James, the brother of Jesus, believing in Jesus as the Messiah. He also makes reference to him being crucified. This is a man, a historian, who lived in the first century. There's an earlier quote where he talks about Pontius Pilate and Jesus being called the Christ, but that, that seems to have been tampered with. Josephus was not a believer. And in that earlier quote, he says, this was Jesus who was the Christ. And he says, and he was a man who was suffered under Pontius Pilate, if you can call him a man. And so we know that somebody came in afterwards and tampered with it. But historians and, and people who study manuscripts believe manuscripts, experts we'd call them as well, people who study manuscripts, very important people. And uh, they will tell you that they believe the hearts, the, the middle part of that is true, and that somebody came in later on and took parts out and added some to make it look like Josephus was some kind of a believer when we know that he wasn't. Nevertheless, this is an extra biblical account that not only tells us that Jesus was a person from the first century, that not only tells us Jesus was a person, but that he was crucified. There was also a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus. Tacitus lived in the first century as well. And Tacitus writes of Pilate, he writes of Jesus, and he writes of his crucifixion. This is not a biblical source. And this is what we would call a hostile witness. He was a Roman historian who did not like Jewish people and who put them all together. And he writes of a group of Christians. And he calls us by a name that it's the wrong name to call Christians. And then he calls Jesus the Christ or that we as Christians believe in him as the Christ and that we believe in some, I'm trying to think of his exact words now, Tacitus, you can look it up, that we as Christians believe in some incredible superstition. It was something like that, that he, that he says, that, we, that there's some superstition. And it's not superstitions where it would be like communion, but it's one incredible superstition that we believe in, and he's probably making a reference to the resurrection. Now, there are other ancient historians from the first century and from the second century. First century would be zero to 99. Second century would be 200 to 299, right? So these are very early sources that talk about Christians, talk about the resurrection, talk about the commitment that we had, that Christians had to Christ. And this is the reason that today scholars will say, we know that Jesus existed. I was talking to a critic not, I don't know, a few months ago, and he said to me, well, I don't believe Jesus even existed. And I said, well, then you're going against every scholar that's out there. Because every scholar in this field that studies it knows that that's an old argument. That argument was used by critics in the 60s and 70s and maybe in the 80s. But soon after that, it faded away because of all of the historical evidence that we have. Not only these accounts. Now, I want to read you a summary 
There was also the Babylonian Talmud. There's also a second century historian by the name of Luciana. And I want to read you the conclusion from an article that is called Ancient Evidence for Jesus from Non-Christian Sources. It's from bethinking.org. So if you want to read this article, it gives you all of the details of all of these different men that spoke in history, or that, that wrote in history, okay? And it gives you the breakdown and what they wrote. Let me give that to you again because I see some of you taking notes. It's from bethinking.org and it is ancient evidence for Jesus from non-Christian sources. Now the summary is a little bit long, but bear with me, all right, as I read it. It says, let's summarize what we've learned about Jesus from examining from this examination of ancient non-Christian sources. First, both Josephus and Luciana indicate that Jesus was regarded as wise. Second, Pliny, and this is Pliny the Younger, right? You got Pliny the Younger and Pliny the Elder. This is Pliny the Younger. And the Talmud and Luciana imply he was powerful and a revered teacher. Third, both Josephus and the Talmud indicate he performed miracles or miraculous feats. And Tatticus, Josephus, and the Talmud and Luciana all mention that he was crucified. Tatticus and Josephus say this occurred under Pontius Pilate. And the Talmud declares it happened on the eve of Passover. Fifth, there are some references to the Christian belief in Jesus, Jesus' resurrection, both in Tacitus and Josephus. Sixth, Josephus recorded Jesus' followers believed that he was the Christ or the Messiah. And finally, both Pliny and Luciana indicated Christians worshiped Jesus as God. Almost done. Hang in there. I hope you see this small selection of ancient non-Christian sources helps collaborate our knowledge of Jesus from the Gospels. Of course, there are many ancient Christian sources of information about Jesus as well. But since the historical reliability of the canonical, canonical gospels is so well established, I invite you to read these for an, author, uh, uh, an authentication for the life of Jesus. So this is very powerful from ancient sources that what the Bible talks about Jesus is actually historical. So let me give you five of the facts. These are what we know about Jesus. Now, some will use different numbers. Some will use five, some will use seven, some will use 12. I heard Dr. Gary Habermas give 12 one time. By the way, when you talk about indisputable facts, if you want to look up somebody that covers these much, much better than I do, look up Dr. Gary Habermas. He's also done some incredible studies on near-death experiences. People seeing things outside of their body and that this, is, this has been scientifically covered. People have done studies on near-death experience which prove that there is something supernatural going on, that there's more than just this natural world. So you can take notes on that too, Dr. Gary Habermas. You can look at his stuff on indisputable facts of the resurrection, and you can look at his stuff at near-death experiences, and we'll do a whole study sometime, or at least in a study sometime, we'll look at some of the the facts that we found on near-death experience. It truly is absolutely fascinating. Okay, so I'm going to give you five of them. I have, why do I have seven of here written? I've got seven down here. I think I put some of these together. But let me give you a number of them, all right? <laughs> I, I think I rethought a couple of these because, I mean, there's a list of 12 that's out there. 
Number one, oh, I know what I'm doing. I, mean, I really don't know what I'm doing, but I know what I'm doing. I think I know what I'm doing. Oh, no. All right. Okay, here we go. I do have five of them. I just don't have them numbered on my notes. I'm okay. I promise. <laughs> if you guys attend here regularly, you know that this, this happens a lot with me and my notes. All right. So, number one, we know that Jesus lived and was crucified. That's an indisputable fact by the evidence. We know that Jesus lived and was crucified. And I just went over the evidence with you, okay? So we know that for a fact. Number two, we know that Jesus was buried. Again, that's in the information, but most people who are killed are buried, and we know that he was buried. Now, some people would add to this, he was buried and the tomb was empty, but the idea that the tomb was empty is not as, as indisputable as the fact that he was buried. And so I've left that off. Some people would add it in, but it gives critics a chance to be able to say, the majority of scholars don't say that it's indisputable that the, the tomb was empty. There are many of them who would, but not all of them. And so when you put that in this list, it gives them an opportunity to focus on that, and by, by doing so, they diminish the other ones, okay? So he lived and he was crucified. He was buried. We know for a fact the disciples had experiences which they believed were literal appearances of the risen Savior. Now notice these facts are not put in the form as if the Christian were saying them. What we know is that the disciples, all of them, all 11 of the remaining ones, believed that they saw the risen Lord. They actually gave their lives for Jesus. They died. Some people say, well, it was mass hallucination. There's major problems with that theory, by the way. Some people say that they were in cahoots together, that they came up with this lie. Later on, that lie was spread to Paul, by the way, who was an enemy of the church and, and became a Christian. And we'll talk about him in a moment. But these guys went to their death. And some people say, well, listen, there's people all the time that give their lives for what they believe. And you see that in, in Islam. The only way to guarantee that you're going to get to heaven is to actually, you know, really die for, for Islam or, or die for Muhammad. That's the only way to really assure you get into heaven. Otherwise, eh, maybe. And so they say that happens all the time. No, they die for what they believe. These guys died for what they at least thought they knew because they were convinced that they had seen the risen Lord. And so there is a difference between it. They went to the grave. They were tortured. They, they lived in poverty. They had all kinds of difficulties and problems. And they stuck to their guns that they had seen the risen Lord. So I'm going to read the way this is put again. The disciples had experiences which they believed were literal appearances of the risen Lord. Number four, the resurrection was the central message of the church when it was born and grew. The resurrection didn't show up somewhere down the line. One of the oldest pieces of scripture that we have is a creed that you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is the creed that talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it predates, 1 Corinthians predates the gospel of Mark. So 1 Corinthians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians actually predate the gospels. And so when you're reading about the cross, the resurrection, 
in the book of Corinthians and in the book of Thessalonians, you are reading the very earliest letters that were written to Christians. And so we know that the resurrection was a part of the message from the very beginning and that the church was born and grew out of this resurrection. Finally, five, James, the brother of Jesus, who we know that during the life of Jesus was hostile towards him. We know that, that Mary and James and his other brother Jude or Judas or Judah went to get him because they thought he had gone insane. Do you remember that? And at some point, the Bible says that Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection as well. And that Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul says in one of his epistles, and, and Jesus appeared to me as one born out of time. Even though Paul was a contemporary of Jesus, was, was at the same feast that Jesus would have gone to. Paul, as a Pharisee, would have been there. Jesus made his way there. But Paul says, as one born out of time, I saw the risen Christ. So we have the conversion of James and Paul. And the conversion of Paul is even more powerful because Paul was a Pharisee who was part of the religious order in Jerusalem, who attacked Christians, who was there when Stephen was stoned, the first martyr of the church, and they laid their cloaks uh, at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. He pursued Christians to other cities, and while he was on his way to Damascus, he had an experience with God. God literally knocked him down. Paul was slain in the spirit, but not like, you know, charismatic churches say you're slain in the spirit. It's a whole different kind of thing. And he ended up committing his life to Christ. And if you are going to say that the gospel just happened, then you have to deal with the conversion of Paul. Because enemies of the cross don't just convert. Paul said, I had cast my lot to put to death Christians to my shame. Paul had voted for Christians to be put to death. And Paul said, I am the least among Christians because of all of the things that I have done. So when you look at all of these things, these are facts that you have to deal with. And when you ask people who are in the world, we know these things, they're facts. How do you explain them? And I've never heard anybody explain these facts in a way other than it happened. That Jesus rose from the dead. These disciples saw the risen Lord. How did the gospel spread around the world so early? How did all of these things that we talk about take place if it wasn't for the incredible aspect of the resurrection? Now, as I said, there's a lot more information about that and you can look that up. I don't have time to go into it all tonight, but I wanna quickly cover seven things. This is the list I was looking at that the resurrection does in our lives. Number one, the resurrection speaks of the incredible power of God. If God can come to this earth as a man live his life in front of us and then be crucified and then rise from the dead in a new transformed body, then God can do anything you need him to do. There's power, you know, like the angel said at the birth of Jesus, now to God, nothing will be impossible. Number two, the resurrection speaks of the power over death. Jesus was victorious over sin on the cross and he defeated death at the resurrection. We were set free from sin at the cross and we were given resurrection because of his resurrection. Number three, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, death came into the world by one man. That one man was Adam. When we get to heaven, let's all get him. Death came into the world through one man. And then it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and resurrection came into the world through one man. 
because Jesus rose, you and I who believe in him will rise as well. And resurrection came into this world through Jesus rising from the dead. And again, other people rose, but they died again. Jesus rose and is alive forever like you and I will be. Number four, the resurrection fulfills Scripture and gives us confidence in the Word of God. There were Old Testament passages that talked about the supernatural aspect of Jesus not dying or not remaining dead. In Psalm 16, it says that you will not let your Holy One see corruption. In Isaiah 53, in Psalms 22, there are references to after dying, being brought back to life again in both of them. And then it, that's foretold, something supernatural foretold and gives us great confidence in the word of God. Number five, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the first fruits because he rose from the dead, we will rise again. That he was the first fruits, in other words, he's the first one to do it. But it's like when a little hole gets broken in a dam, sooner or later, all the water is gonna come rushing through. Jesus as one individual rose from the dead. And sooner or later, all of those who trust in him as our savior will rise from the dead as well. The Bible also says that was number five. Number six, we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit which rose Jesus from the dead. The power of the Spirit that brought him from the dead, the Bible says, is at work within you. That is the most powerful thing to ever happen because it, it broke natural laws to be able to bring someone back to life. Nothing in this world has ever been so powerful. And that work is inside of each one of us as Christians. And that's absolutely amazing. Finally, we know that this world is not our home. Jesus said, we are pilgrims. We are passing through. Paul said, we are citizens of heaven and not citizens of this earth. And we are to have our mind on the things of God and the things of heaven. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. Our feet are to be, to be prepared with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our highest call, and it is in God that we put our trust. And because Jesus rose from the dead, making this available for everyone, let us as Christians never forget that that is our call, that is our duty, that is what we are about. Whatever happens here on earth doesn't really have to do with us. We're pilgrims, we're passing through, we're citizens of heaven. We're not supposed to be citizens of this earth. And so we put our trust back in him. This world and all that is in it, the Bible says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is passing away. But you and I, because he rose, we will live forever. Do we serve something that is passing away? The Bible tells us in the book of James that if we are living for this world, these are strong words. We are adulterers and adulteresses against God. We are to love him, have our lives committed to him. He is our call and he is our purpose. And because of the resurrection, we have been given eternity with him. Citizens, not of this earth, but of heaven. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to be able to study your word and how powerful the truth of these, these indisputable facts about the life of Jesus and the early church and how really the only explanation to all of these things is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we have chosen to believe. And I pray for all of those here tonight who have not made a commitment to you, that you would give them the opportunity to be able to make that commitment. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.